So first, turn off the news because the news is trying to bond with you by appealing to your sense of threat. Power to Live More with Joe Dodds. Welcome to the Power to Live More podcast, all about productivity, organisation, well-being, energy and resilience. I'm Jo Dodds and I started this show to enable interesting people to share their stories about how they use their power to live more and by that I mean to do the stuff that they want to do more than the stuff that they need to or should do. It's about creating a life for yourself where you have the energy, health and space to be happy and fulfilled, spending your time as you'd like, whether that be at work, home or somewhere else entirely. That's your choice. Hello, my name's Ellie Dodds and I'm co-presenter and today Joe's interviewing Loretta Bruning. Loretta and Joe met through one of Loretta's marketing team and Joe was fascinated to interview her and is now off to read her books. Loretta is the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute which helps people rewire their brain chemistry naturally. She's authored several books including the bestseller Habits of a Happy Brain. Her work has been featured on Forbes, NPR, Fox, The Wall Street Journal, NBC, Psychology Today, Cosmopolitan, Inc., Men's Health, Fast Company, Dr Oz and many others. Back to the studio. Today I'm interviewing Dr Loretta Bruning of the InnerMammalInstitute.org. So lovely to have you with me, Loretta. Hi, thanks for having me. And I'm very impressed because you actually know where I live, even though you don't live anywhere near here. <laughs> yeah, I roamed around there a lot. It's beautiful. <laughs> so tell us a bit about who you are. Uh, what you do and where you do it? Well, I am founder of the Inner Mammal Institute. I help people understand their mammal brain, which controls their dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. I was a college professor for 25 years, and I was a little frustration, uh, a little frustrated with both the motivation of the students around me, and not just my students, but let's say my kids and other professors' kids. And I was also frustrated with the social science that was supposed to give us the answers. So I started researching the animal brain and I was very excited by what I found. And I'm in Northern California. Lovely. And where do you work when you're there? Do you work from home? Have you got an office? Are you roaming around? Um, Oh, um, I have an office in my home. Lovely, lovely. So um, great to, to have you here. I'm really excited to have this conversation um, as much as anything else, because I was having a conversation with uh, my husband this this week uh, about our daughter and her attitude to, to her netball. <laughs> and he, he was saying she needs to read that chimp book. She needs to read that chimp book. And I was like, why is that? And he's going, well, when I read it, it kept me much calmer. And I was like, right, OK. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was good and obviously now we're talking and uh, we're going to talk in uh, broader uh, uh, 
terms not just about the chimps presumably they'll they'll crop up <laughs> but, yes they will um, and i hope yeah. she'll read my book <laughs> yes exactly exactly so really really good timing so uh yeah so so tell us more about why you do what you do i mean obviously you've started by sort of that overview of you know you had those frustrations and you wanted to find out more but you know the average person doesn't think that and then go off and research to such a degree and write books and you know become known for this sort of stuff so what was the driver? Um, well, I could say that I grew up in a rather unhappy home. I, I'm a person with very few relatives and they're mostly all dead. So, so I can say things that a lot of people can't. Um, my mother was unhappy a lot and I couldn't figure out why. So in a way, maybe I was motivated by that. But then I, when I was able to leave home, then social science was sort of my world. And that gives you the illusion that happiness is the default state of nature and something is wrong with our society. And then if you just fight society, then everybody will be happy. Well, that doesn't work, actually. I was, uh, so I guess I was sort of having a, a vacuum of understanding people. And then I started watching David Attenborough, my hero, and wow, like everything made sense. And the cool thing is he studied the animal brain back in the 50s when um, I think there was more openness to the facts. Uh, today, there's a lot of tabooness around acknowledging the conflict between animals. Uh, but when you understand the conflict between animals, it's so easy to understand why humans make themselves miserable. And why do you think that taboo exists? Is it because we're trying to sort of distance ourselves from being an animal? Uh, no, I think because there's this ideology that the state of nature is effortless happiness and something has gone wrong and capitalism is the cause of unhappiness. And if you fight capitalism, then you'll be just happy all the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I lived in that world. I have to say, I even taught that, you know, and then it's like, whoa, this is just not true because humans have always had these nonverbal neurochemical impulses. We work hard to restrain them, but the impulses are still real. You can't what I say is we have two brains because we need both. They have to work together. And if you have the illusion that you're just in your cortex, you're not. Hmm. So let's unpick that a bit. I mean, I just sort of threw in the the, the, the chimp thing because, I, as I say, my husband mentioned it th this week. Um, but what, what's some of the uh, sort of science behind the – you just you know mentioned two brains. Yeah. Let, for those people who, who haven't – you know, read some of the books, has, haven't read your book, <laughs> um, sure. you know, don't really understand this, this stuff. Sure. Let's do the sort of um, 101 on <laughs> what, the, what sure. we mean here. Sure. So the animal brain rewards you with a good feeling chemical when you see or do something good for your survival. And it alarms you with a bad feeling chemical when you see or do something bad for your survival. But it defines survival in a quirky way, which is why we all do quirky stuff to stimulate our happy chemicals and relieve our unhappy chemicals. So to be more specific, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin are the happy chemicals that I focus on. And 
when they turn on, you get a great feeling, but your verbal brain doesn't tell you why it turned it on, so you don't know why, but neurons connect, and then you wanna do that thing again, even though you don't consciously know what that thing is. So the simple way to understand it is, our ancestors had to forage constantly in order to survive. So a chimp is constantly looking for food, otherwise they'll starve to death. So they look like, let's say you're hungry, you look around, you say, oh, there's something I can get, and you walk toward it, that's dopamine. So dopamine is the great feeling you have when you see something that meets your needs, you say, I can get that, and you take a step toward it. So we can all think of examples in our daily life, whether it's um, a, a job opportunity, a romantic opportunity, or a bad habit. <laughs> um, so those are all that feeling of like, I want that, I can get it, it will meet my needs. And the good feeling stops in a short time, and then you have to do more to get more, which is why um, it worked for our ancestors, because they would eat something, then a few hours later, they'd be hungry again. So they had a constant need to quest, but dopamine, dopamine made it feel good, and we have uh, our uh, urge with our full bellies to get that good feeling in other ways today. So um, can I move on to yes. oxytocin and serotonin? Yes, please do, yeah. Yeah, so oxytocin is the feeling of safety in numbers. So mammals look for a herd or a troop to protect them from predators. And when you're with a group, you can lower your guard and that feels good, but you would love that good feeling all the time, but it wouldn't be safe to release it all the time. So your brain makes careful decisions about which group is gonna protect you and which group is not gonna protect you. So in human terms, we call that trust. So your brain is always looking for who can I trust? And when you find an opportunity to trust, it rewards you with the good feeling of oxytocin. But then it's frustrating because when a mammal is with a herd, then you're competing with a lot of other hooves and horns for the same little patch of grass. So you would really rather be roaming greener pasture. But when you go and do that, then you feel like you're gonna be eaten by a predator, which triggers the stress chemical cortisol. So then, and, and your oxytocin falls when you leave the herd. So we all have these conflicting impulses of I want to roam toward new rewards to stimulate my dopamine, but I wanna stay with the herd to stimulate oxytocin. And what groups often do, they try to keep you in the group by scaring you about predators so that you don't leave. And every group does this by constantly chatting about their common enemy. And uh, anytime you're with a group of people, just notice how they're talking about whoever is the common enemy of that group. And then a few hours later, you'll be with another group. And then they'll be chit-chatting about the common enemy of that group. <laughs> so uh, finally, let's talk about serotonin. So the complicated thing about life is that animals are very hierarchical in their groups. And we don't like to acknowledge this, but in the animal world, um, if you are near a weaker individual, 
and you grab for a bit of food or mating opportunity, they're going to bite you. So your brain releases cortisol to alarm you when you're in the one down position and that motivates you to withdraw. But when you see that you're in the one up position, then your brain releases a bit of serotonin. And that's not aggression, but it's calm that says, I got it going on. I'm strong enough to meet my needs despite all of these rivals for these bananas and mating opportunities. So we can all think of, of examples of how we go through our day and endlessly compare ourselves to others with brains that evolved to do this. And we feel good when we're in the one-up position, but um, we gravitate toward threats. Our brain prioritizes threats because that kept our ancestors safe. So you could always see like another person is stronger than you in this area. And this other person is stronger than you in that area. And you can drive yourself crazy constantly sort of focusing on your own weakness and then convincing yourself that they are putting you down. And this is sort of what people do. Hmm, interesting. I've never quite heard all of those described in that way, albeit I've no, this you know, is read around subjects. Of my original work. <laughs> I am this is not from academic neuroscience. Yes, and yeah. I got it from a hundred years of research in a field called ethology, which it doesn't use that name much, although it does more so in Europe. Yes, yeah. And I think as well, we don't always hear about all those three at the same time correct and people are talking either so correct yeah this is 100 percent my work so in mm -hmm. academia each of these is what i call diseaseified <laughs> so <laughs> there's sort of this idea that in the state of nature you're effortlessly happy all the time and then something went wrong and then you go to the doctor and then they fix it for you. And mm. this whole model I think is really not healthy at all. And when you asked me in the beginning, you know, what's motivating me, I think, you know, that's very much what's motivating me. Mm. And so what you're saying with the descriptions is, is, and the comment that you've made about, you know, people think in nature, it all should be wonderful is actually it's ebbs and flows and these things, happen where you get more of this and less of it and and there's that tension and that's a natural exactly. thing so yes. so the, so i guess the, the 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 next question is knowing that that's happening what 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 do we need to do as humans to enable us to i don't know if it's balance it or or get more of of the good stuff uh, albeit it's the first thing that came to mind when you talked about dopamine and wanting more of it is that actually if you want more of the wrong things then you've got you know, yes, uh, negative addictions and all that sort of stuff as well. So is balance a, a word that, that you'd be using? Um, <laughs> very good question. <laughs> um, I personally don't use that word because it has become, as we said, medicalized, yeah. and even diseaseified, as if there's some perfect balance. But in fact, the core thing is that these chemicals did not evolve to be on all the time. They evolved mm. to turn on for very specific purposes to motivate specific behaviors in specific settings that makes so much sense if you think of it from the perspective of a chimp or a caveman or, whatever, or you know, a foraging ancestor. 
Now, what can we do in the modern world? So there's one core thing uh, um, that we really need to focus on. Uh, we're all born with billions of neurons, but no connections between them. Unlike animals, the smaller the brain, the more the, the fewer neurons they have, but the more the their neurons are connected at birth. So we just have this spaghetti of neurons that doesn't do a thing for us, which is why we're absolutely helps, helpless and vulnerable at birth and they connect from experience. So throughout your early years, each time your dopamine surged, each time your oxytocin or serotonin surged, that created connections, neural pathways that tell you, this is what you need to do to survive. So we're all operating on that. So the first step, you know, rather than calling it balance, I would call it self-acceptance. To accept that this is what's going on and it can dispose us all to overreact, but I'm not really big on this um, endless self-criticism that is often marketed, uh, especially in the mindfulness world. Like, you know, my ego is bad, I should hate my ego. I don't think that's healthy for people. So I think it's better off to think, you know, um, I have these circuits built from random chance. Everyone else is in the same situation. Nothing is wrong with me. Nothing is wrong with them. But I am challenged to manage this brain with these circuits and to feel good. So how can I feel good in the long run as well as the short run? And so acting like a jerk is not going to make you feel good in the long run. <laughs> You know, indulging in impulses and bad habits is not going to make you feel good in the long run. And what makes us different from animals is that we do have this ability to anticipate long run consequences. So we're constantly in this like, oh, I'd really love X, but when I indulge in X, then I worry about the long run consequence. So some people indulge and then they have this overwhelming worry. <laughs> So, and, and that overwhelming worry, I have another book coming out about anxiety, um, but bottom line is we can build new pathways, but it's very hard in adulthood because our neuroplasticity peaks in adolescence. So the simple short answer in the interest of time to build a new pathway in adulthood is takes a lot of repetition. And in order to be able to repeat, you have to define very specifically the, the new behavior that you want to substitute for the old behavior and then repeat it, let's say for 45 days, faithfully every day. And then a new pathway will build and it won't be a super highway like the one you myelinated in adolescence, but it will be big enough for your electricity to flow and it will start to feel natural. Mm hmm. So your your best selling book is is Habits of a Happy Brain. And what you've just said sort of speaks to that. What, what examples have you got of people um, doing that? So so let's talk sort of practical example of how that would happen. So um, a practical example of a dopamine habit. And I'll, I'll give you a practical example of an oxytocin and serotonin habit. Mm. So yeah. a dopamine habit, what I suggest is when you step toward a goal, that gives you a good feeling because if you think of like a monkey is going toward a piece of fruit, when you first see the fruit and you say, I can get that, that's dopamine, but then each step closer, you get more dopamine. So many people are in the habit of doing this with big dreams. 
And many people are effectively motivated with big dreams. But the problem is often that the dream is too big, <clears throat> excuse me, and then the person doesn't see progress. So then they don't take the steps, they don't take, they don't get the dopamine and they don't keep taking the steps. Hmm. So what I advocate is we need a long-term goal, a short-term goal, and a middle-term goal. So a short-term goal would be like, what am I gonna get done before lunch? And then I'm gonna have this great feeling like, wow, I did it. And instead of feeling like I'm swamped by endless to-dos, I can constantly be motivating myself with good feelings by dividing my life into small chunks that I have power over so I don't, I don't feel like a victim. And well, that's enough for that one because I can go on. <laughs> so um, <laughs> oxytocin. So what would be an oxytocin um, new habit? So oxytocin is trust, but um, what happens in the animal world, you see like in a chimp video or something, if you let the wrong chimp get too close to you, they can bite you and they can kill you in an instant. So our animal brain is very guarded against betrayed trust. So when you trust someone, you may have expectations that are, are your own and sometimes they're excessive and unrealistic. So that other person disappoints your expectations and that triggers your cortisol and it builds a pathway and you say, whoa, I'm never gonna trust them again and I'm never gonna trust anyone like them again. And then you're on your guard and over time it becomes hard to trust. So what I recommend is build trust in small steps. And this is not the same as like giving money to a person on the street because what your mammal brain cares about is having someone there for you in the long run. So let's let's just think of a simple example. Let's say a person in the desk next to you that gets on your nerves or, per, or next door neighbor who gets on your nerves. And you don't want to like buy them a new car and then go back to being annoyed with them. <laughs> so it's small steps. So do something very small for them and then wait for them to reciprocate in a small step and then do another small step. But don't drive yourself nuts waiting for them to reciprocate, but go on and do a small act of trust for someone else and always be planting those seeds. And then every day you'll wake up and say, oh, one of my seeds is gonna sprout today. I don't know which, I can't control other people, but it feels great when they do. So that's the oxytocin solution. Now, um, serotonin. So this is difficult because, as I said, people are always sort of um, making those social comparisons and then um, often seeing their weakness and that triggers stress chemicals. But when you see your strength, what's the problem? Well, first, maybe it feels awkward because you think it's crude to put yourself above others. And also when you put yourself in a positive light or a position of strength, then you fear losing it, just like the alpha chimp who everybody else is trying to dethrone the alpha chimp. Mm -hmm. So um, the idea again is small steps. So frequently put yourself in a positive light, especially when you notice learn to notice yourself making social comparisons learn to notice yourself putting other people in the position of strength and 
obsessing over your own weaknesses and just for 30 seconds, just say, oh, but I also have this advantage. And it's okay to focus on your own advantage. You don't have to hate yourself for it because if you do, you're gonna end up depressed because that's our, our mammal brain equates being in the position of strength with being able to get food and mating opportunity. Mm. That's helpful. I've just been applying the uh, the little dudsy, the, my daughter's uh, <laughs> netball trauma <laughs> to, to that explanation. And uh, I will I'm certainly sorry, be going to have Your daughter's what? Her netball trauma. So the, the issue that we were discussing was that she uh, had been asked to play a different position in her school netball team and was feeling like she'd only been asked to do that because she wasn't good enough to play her usual position oh. and and this is a this is a girl who who um has played three matches in two days this week and got player of the match in every match so there's a bit oh. big disconnect between <laughs> those two things <laughs> oh yeah classic so any threat to your status or a status setback has an enormous neurochemical effect and people mm. don't like to admit it, but it's tremendous, yes. Mm. And that's like the first thing is just to say, I'm a mammal and I care about status and I'm better off if I actually acknowledge my true feelings rather than deny them. Yes, yeah. So what sort of, um, tips and ideas have you got for people to to start to think about some of these things personally so you've given us some some great examples to sort of further explain those changes to to sort of rewire uh your brain to get to that sort of happier state how how can people so you know if i was listening to this and i'm somebody who feels quite down a lot of the time or doesn't wouldn't admit to saying that I feel happy um, and I want to be, I want to do things differently. What, what's the sort of some of the things people can start to think about in order to, to make some of those changes? Okay, so um, one is to sort of design um, a personal self-soothing tool that you can always have with you, that you can always look forward to, that's always available to you and you have control over it. So it's not like calling a friend because you don't really have control over that. So um, the one that I use a lot that I, I just think is funny, um, like let's say you're at work and somebody gets on your nerves and you get really upset. If you put some comedy on your phone and you have earphones and you walk up and down stairs while listening to comedy, <laughs> so it's like it's um it's it's working your mind and body and it's so fully absorbing that it it sort of sucks the electricity out of the circuits that you're that you were activating mm. and you can do this for 20 minutes your body metabolizes half of the cortisol if you do it for 40 minutes your body metabolizes um, 75% of the cortisol. So cortisol has a half-life of 20 minutes. So anytime you get triggered, you, you easily get sucked into a loop because 
Uh, cortisol tells your brain to look for evidence of threat. You can see how this would work in the state of nature. I smell a predator, I look for the predator. So once you're triggered, you look for evidence and then you say, look, I can prove it. They're all against me. Look at what they're doing to me. It's never gonna be better. It always happens to me. And that triggers the circuit of whatever went wrong when you were young, which, have, which is a very well-developed circuit and you are absolutely convinced that this always happens to you. So the alternative is to build a new circuit and the new circuit is never gonna be as big as the one you've already replayed a thousand times. So you can work on, like I mentioned that one example, but you could build a number of these little, little uh, sort of go-to self-soothers. I call it filling your pantry um, with anxiety tumors. And I call it digging the well before you need the water. So how can I have this comedy that will cheer me up in a bad moment? Well, mm. I personally have to look through a lot of comedy because most of it I hate. Most of it to me is like so bitter and angry and blaming. So it takes time to find what I like. And if I do that when I'm in a bit bad mood, then I end up with more cortisol. So <laughs> yes. sort of some preparation and also to sort of chunk my life so that, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I have more energy and more calm. And then as I go through the day, I have to plan other things to do. So I don't try to do the hardest things when I'm already triggered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have I have a self-soother, but mainly only when I'm in my house, which is uh, singing because I do choral yeah. singing. So by the time I've followed music, come in at the right time, sung nicely and breathed properly, I haven't done the walking up and down the stairs bit, but I am physically there too. Uh, and that does make a, a big difference for me. That's great because, as you know, um, uh, singing uses your breathing muscles a lot, and the breathing muscles are the place where we hold um, threatened feelings. That's fabulous. Mm. Very mm. good. Mm. Lovely. So I, I love that as a as a, a thing for people to to take away and 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 look at using uh, to to help them. And that that's partly about being happy. It's also about being less anxious. And you talked about that being your next book. Yes. Yeah. It's a massive thing currently, isn't it? Anxiety. I did a, a mental health at work for uh, first aid course la uh, this last week, which I keep laughing to myself. I work on my own, so I'm not going to need to use the skills very much. <laughs> but, but I thought it was something that was worth doing, you know, because I yeah. sort of look at well-being and so on. And there's just aside from just general anxiety, there's just so many issues around. Uh, you know, people having thoughts and 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 getting stressed because of the thoughts and building things up into a bigger issue, and and then of course there are the sort of the more serious mental illnesses as well. What are your sort of and again, yeah. you know, we've got limited time. But where, what are your sort yeah. of um, main yeah. points about the the anxiety yeah. piece currently? First, um, I should mention. So I have a book called The Science of Positivity. And um, I prefer not to use diseaseifying words because anxiety now has become like a medical disorder. Yes. And the whole expectation that the healthcare system can and should fix it for you um, takes away from people's expectations that 
they have to manage the mammal brain that they're born mm. with. And I hear from readers who have had bad um, effects from pills. And um, in the long run, your body can habituate to pills, so you need more and different ones, and that augments the bad effects. And um, it's not, I think, the right approach. Um, I think a better approach is to understand how our brain works, understand that our circuits are built from past experience, so we tend to overreact. And the big thing is that our lives are so safe today that our brain is looking for threats because that's what it's designed to do. And then mm. people try to bond with you by appealing to your sense of threat. So first, turn off the news because the news is trying to bond with you by appealing to your sense of threat. And then, you know, when you're in all of these negative conversations with people who bond around threat, I just think it's so unhealthy and I just avoid it. And I don't know, if, if you have to be a social outcast, I think that's better than bonding with people about anxiety. And finally, yeah. I have to say that um, I have this sort of deja vu of being with a therapist when our kids were young and being advised with the therapist, you know, to bond with the kid around anxiety. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, but isn't that going to create more anxiety? And I think we've really, um, we've taught people that anxiety gets rewarded. I mean, a child who says they're feeling anxious gets relieved from taking a test. This is crazy. So in, in human history, you had to manage your anxiety in order to get rewards. Now you get rewarded for saying it's, I, I call it victim Olympics. Whoever, you know, has more of an appeal to having a bad life gets the reward. I, I don't think this is healthy. No. So how how can people or how can we as a society do that that differently? Because it it's different. Yeah. It's you know that thing between uh, you know showing some sort of sympathy, understanding, and trying to help people. From what you've just said, you know that that is a thin line that you. You try to do that, but you don't want to take away that responsibility from people. But if you like push it at them and sort of yeah. abdicate responsibility, then they how can they help themselves yeah. as well? Yeah. So um, I have a new book called Tame Your Anxiety. So my book, The Science of Positivity, is focused about doing this to yourself and being committed to saying it is worth being positive even if other people are negative. I can't change the world. Other people will be negative. That's the reality. And if I say that I'm not going to be positive until my whole herd marches toward positivity, my life may go by in pure negativity. So mm. it's making the decision that it's worth being positive, whether other people are not. But you ask a valid question. So, but if I have already done that, and then if I still have a little bit of energy left and I still want to help other people, what can I do? And so that is the final chapter of my new book called Tame Your Anxiety, which is coming out in May. And the final chapter on help. And I first talk about how a lot of help doesn't help. So one of the best things you could do is to model the behavior you want. So 
people will learn more from what you do than what you say. So when you model positivity, that they're going to learn from that. So um, if you tell other people, the simple example is if someone feels like they're being chased by a predator and you tell them to visualize themselves on a tropical beach, then they're like, no, I don't want to do that. The, the lion will get me, right? <laughs> so, so the better answer is, if I feel like I'm chased by a lion, instead of focusing on the lion, I focus on the path in front of me. I take one step in front of another, and soon I'm back enjoying delicious grass. So I help other people see how I do that. Oh, this person is frustrating me. I find a path that I have control over. I take one step after another and I enjoy the reward. So is to help other people find their power to do that by seeing how you do that. Mm, that's really interesting. As interesting as the mother of a 12 year old as well, that uh, whenever I try and have any of these sort of more self-developmental discussions with her, she hates it, shuts me down. <laughs> Doesn't want to have the discussion. <laughs> You know, it's um, great to hear you say that because I, I feel guilty that I didn't try that much because I learned all of this after my kids were grown up. And so I that's exactly how I felt. Oh, they'll hate me if I say this. But I truly do think that your kid is taking it in. So when they push you away, just walk away and say, I did it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, her, the other good news this week is she's just passed her singing exam with a distinction. And I hadn't heard her sing for three months because she's been practicing internally in her head. And also when I'm clearly not around <laughs> and I've purposely kept away because I don't want to yes. pressure her because I know that she hates it. And she's just exactly. come through and proved that was the right thing to do. And uh, it's really hard, but yes. it worked. <laughs> That is fabulous. It's, it has to be your own goal to stimulate your dopamine. When it's mm. someone else's goal, then you just feel like you're in the one down position. Yes. And uh, unless your whole life is about pleasing that person and a healthy 12 year old, you know, their whole life is not about pleasing their mother. So no. it sounds like a healthy relationship. <laughs> oh, phew. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, so. Tell us a bit about what you do when things don't go right. So um, uh, you, it's a question I ask all my guests. I'm particularly yeah. interested in your response because you have a sort of scientific <laughs> perspective on it as well. But, you know, when you have a bad day, when it's all going horribly wrong around you, how do you deal with that? Oh, you know, I have to say, um, I do feel like things go wrong in strings, you know? Doesn't it feel that way? Yep. And I personally don't believe in astrology. And, um, you know, here in Northern California, you have a certain number of people who do. And I, I sort of joke with my husband, you know, it must be one of those moons that's gone. <laughs> but, um, then, you know, there are days when three people suddenly get back to me and I have a string of good news and it's so random. And when you have a string of good news, it's easy to build unrealistic expectations because when you have this big string of happy chemicals and it paves a neural pathway and you think this is how life should be. And then when it's not that, you feel disappointed, like what's gone wrong? So I have to really remind myself that 
I can't control life. And my, my favorite metaphor is if I keep putting irons in the fire, I don't, you know, one day one of them will heat up and mm -hmm. one day another one will heat up and I can't control it and I can't predict it. So if I have a day when none of those irons heat up and I'm so frustrated and I feel like, God, I've worked so hard, I'm not getting anywhere. And then I think, well, so when, when none of my irons heat up, then this is my day to put a new iron in the fire. And every time something goes right, I tell myself, this is a seed I planted years and years ago, and I couldn't have predicted, you know, that it would have bloomed today. So I just have to, on a bad day, keep saying, you know, this is a day that I'm going to have a little free time to plant a seed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really helpful. Thank you. And well, what about those those days where you end the day knowing that you've had a chance to live more? And that's what I say is about doing more of the things that you want to do and less of the things that you feel you should do or you have to do. What what does that, that day look like? Oh, what, what is it that I do? Oh, OK. Um, so I'll start like the hardest things are um, when I want to ask for something. That's we all know that's hard. And to ask for something when I don't really expect it. And we all know you may have to ask a few different people before you get something. And when someone you think is maybe not especially on the same page as you, but maybe have enough overlap that you think it's worth a try. So you put out a feeler and you say, you know, would you be interested in X? And I don't love to do that. So sometimes a few of those accumulate on my desk and then my desk is full and I think, oh, I got to clear this off. So I say, okay, so I'm going to clear my desk off and then reward myself with something. So clearing it off and writing those feelers, those um, requests, maybe uh, open-ended um, uh, introductions, and then I'm going to reward myself. So my favorite reward is listening to a foreign language video. And I always feel like when it's in a foreign language that, that I sort of understand French or Spanish, that I have to work so hard. I read the subtitles and that helps. And then I can understand what they're saying only if I read the subtitles. And I have to work so hard to process all of this that it absolutely like clears my circuits and wipes my slate clean so that I just get away from whatever I was doing. Um, but it's hard for me to find foreign language videos that are sort of fun and funny and not or depressing. So I have to really look for them. And then I sort of have to have a queue of them waiting for me when I've had a hard day or when I want to reward myself. Wow. I don't think anyone's ever said that that's what they do or will probably ever say that again. <laughs> but I do have a recommendation. It's um, while I'm watching the video, then I try to stretch so that yeah. I'm not just sitting there because I've been sitting all the time. So I yeah. I try to move while I'm watching it. <laughs> yeah, very. I'm very impressed. So, well, I have a, a recommendation for a film, a foreign language film um, that um, has lots of funny bits in, but it's very poignant because it's it's a, a serious okay. uh, message yeah. as well. Have you seen Life is Beautiful, the Italian oh, film? Um, 
You know, I haven't because I thought it would be so depressing, but it's oh, it's not. my favorite oh. film. It's uplifting. Yeah. It's my favorite film. It's it's obviously it's an awful subject, but it's yeah. it, it's that oh. the man makes a game out of the whole thing for his child. So there's lots of funny moments in it, and it is a, an uplifting film. So I would absolutely recommend it. And it's obviously in Italian with subtitles. There you go. Yeah. Oh, I'd love that. But yeah, I just thought it was going to be horribly depressing. Oh, that's interesting. Well, you yeah. know, I have one for you that's just like this, but it's um, Ooh. it's all in English. It's called Empire of the Sun. Do you know it? I have seen that. I'm sure I've seen that. Is that the one with the big red and yellow imagery? Um, yeah, I think so. On it? Yes, yeah. I think I have seen it, but I will put it on my list of things to watch again oh it's so moving so here's the deal it's written by a british guy who grew up in the british colony in shanghai when it was um when the japanese came and occupied it and he was sent to a concentration camp and in this case um he was more the strong individual and it was his efforts to help his parents and help others that sort of helped him and made a positive thing out of it. And it was so moving that when I went to Shanghai, I had to sort of look for the place and hang out on those streets where it's happened, where it happened, which of course were um, uh, affected by, you know, 50 years of communism and uh, it doesn't look the same, but it's, it's very moving to go there. But I was so moved by it, by it that I researched the author and it was mind blowing. I wrote about this in Science of Positivity. Um, and now I can't remember the whole story, but the author did an interview on a British radio show and he told the true story of what really happened to him rather than the idealized story in the movie. And um, yeah. I think that's where I'm, I'm oh, I forgot. It was very different. <laughs> yeah. And I, I can't yeah. remember the whole thing, but it's in my book, yeah. Science of Positivity. Ah, well, I will check that out, and I will also look for The Empire of the Sun again. As I say, I'm sure I saw it but a long time ago, so I will check that out. So thank you so much, Loretta. It's been a really interesting conversation. really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Enjoyed it. And tell people how they can uh, find out more about you, uh, find out about your books, connect with you, and so on. So the Inner Mammal Institute is at innermammalinstitute.org, and... I have um, free videos and blogs and um, lots of resources and all of my books are listed as well. Lovely, brilliant, thank you. Sure, take care, thank you. All this information is available in the show notes, which you can find if you go to the link powertolivemore.com forward slash, in this case, 104. And the tool that I shared on the newsletter last week isn't a tool as such, it's a charge card. So it's called Revolut. And the week before I shared a resource prompted by our recent holiday. And uh, this time it was another holiday tool, but it's useful as well when you're not on holiday. And a friend and I uh, recommended this. So um, Colette Mason, who was on show 81, and I recommended this to Sophie Jury, who was on show 18 on Facebook, uh, because she was asking for some advice around... Um, particular need and this is a charge card that you can use when you're abroad to much reduce currency charges basically you add money to it and then when you spend abroad you just pay using the card and it offers much reduced charges but it's not all that you can do with it you can order as many real cards and virtual cards as you like 
And Sophie actually used one to take on a night out, confident that all she had on it was spending money. And in any event, she could stop it working in two seconds via the app on her phone if she lost it or it was stolen. I like it too because you can use virtual cards to make purchases online and that it also includes a facility where you can use a different card for each transaction or rather a different card number for each transaction which really ups the security so you know you're not using a card and then using it again in effect you just use it once and then you get a different number for the next time. It's free to set up an account and you can do it from your phone and you get the following benefits you get a free UK current account, a free euro IBAN account You can spend in over 150 currencies at the interbank exchange rate. There's no fee exchange in 29 fiat currencies up to £5,000 per month. And there's a no fee ATM withdrawal offer up to £200 per month. So we found it really useful in our family when we've been away. I haven't yet got organised enough to use it on uh, business purchases when I'm buying from the States, but that will be another good way of using it because of the ridiculous exchange rates. So if you're interested in finding out more, then go to joedodds.com forward slash recommends and then forward slash revolut r-e-v-o-l-u-t so that's joedodds.com forward slash recommends forward slash revolut r-e-v-o-l-u-t so this week i've been spending a lot of time working on my new online learning community so you'll find out more about that as time goes on um but that's it for now and the Link to the show notes for this week are powertolivemore.com forward slash 104. And we look forward to speaking to you next week. Use your power to live more. 